This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Olga Novikova. She's in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the P. Herzen Moscow Oncology Research Institute in Moscow, Russia, and also in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the European Medical Center in Moscow, Russia. Uh, welcome, uh, Olga. How are you today? Fine, thanks. First of all, I would like to thank you for the invitation to discuss this topic, and I am pleased to share the experience we have had in Russia regarding the fertility sparing treatment of endometrial cancer and the typical endometrial hyperplasia. Well, thank you. It's, it's obviously a, a pleasure, and uh, thank you again for, for your time, uh, and congratulations on your uh, publication. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a very interesting and important topic in gynecologic oncology, and it is derived from a recent manuscript you published in gynecologic oncology titled Live Births and Maintenance with Levonogestrel IUD Improve Disease-Free Survival After Fertility Sparing Treatment of Atypical Hyperplasia and Early Endometrial Cancer. So, Olga, I wanted to first start by, you know, certainly recognizing that conservative management of patients with endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial cancer is obviously a relevant and important topic, and, and many questions for, uh, certainly arise when discussing this, uh, this topic and the options for these patients. But uh, first, I wanted to get a sense of how common is this uh, an issue in, in Russia? How frequently are, are you seeing patients who are looking for fertility preservation in the setting of atypical hyperplasia or endometrial cancer in Russia? Endometrial cancer is a leading gynecological cancer in Russia with 25,000 new cases diagnosed annually. About 5% of those are found in patients younger than 44 years of age, and this corresponds to 1,300 new cases every year. We do not have statistics for total cases of a typical endometrial hyperplasia, only that it accounts for 10% among all cases of hyperplasia in all age groups. Okay. And, and um, when, when you're seeing these patients in Russia uh, today, what is the standard of what we could say the, the standard of care for, for a patient with endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial cancer? Uh, when they come to you for fertility preservation? In our current national guidelines, last edited in 2020, there is a section on conservative fertility sparing therapy. Unfortunately, in clinical practice, especially outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, young nulliparous patients are often recommended a traditional surgical treatment without even mentioning the option of hormonal treatment. For example, in our institution, about 70% of young patients with a typical endometrial hyperplasia and early endometrial cancer are referred to us by other physicians, and the rest, 30%, refer on their own, despite the gynecologic oncologist's recommendation to undergo a hysterectomy. Yes, so certainly, obviously, concerning that outside of the major cities, uh, you know, young women are still being offered, um, uh, obviously, a hysterectomy and no, no potential possibility of further uh, fertility. 
So certainly we hope that this discussion will also raise awareness throughout Russia as well. Um, so I wanted to actually now get into the study uh, that you published. And, and if you can tell our audience, what was the objective uh, of your study? Why did you do it? Uh, our objectives were to compare different regimens of hormonal therapy in young patients with atypical endometrial hyperplasia and early endometrial cancer to assess the productive and oncologic outcomes and to explore possible predictors of complete response and disease-free survival. So when you were looking at doing the study, um, what were some of your inclusion criteria for, for the study? In general, we use the conventional criteria to select our patients for conservative treatment, except for tumor grade and myometrial invasion. Our study's criteria were reproductive age, strong desire to preserve fertility, primary diagnosis of atypical endometrial hyperplasia or grade 1 and grade 2 endometrioid adenocarcinoma with no or less than 2 mm myometrial invasion on MRI and no evidence of extrauterine spread. Great, and, and, and I, w one of those criteria I want to uh, speak to a little bit about uh, later, particularly uh, the, the higher grade. Um, but I wanted to ask you first, uh, you know, certainly uh, I believe that the studies span um, from 2009 to 2019, and um, one of the additional questions I had, uh, you know, certainly treatment regimens have changed throughout the duration um, tell us uh, why was this uh, the case and uh, how this might have impacted uh, your results. We started recruiting patients into the study in January 2009. At that time, we believed the ideal treatment protocol for atypical endometrial hyperplasia was levonorgestrel IUD and 2 DNC and endometrial cancer was best treated with levonorgestrel IUD and uh, gonadotropin hormone agonists and 2-DNC. Mm -hmm. After six years, we decided to change treatment protocols in attempt to improve complete response rate. All new patients uh, that entered the study from August 2015 onwards received for atypical endometrial hyperplasia levonorgestrel IUD plus 3-DNC at three months instead of just an office biopsy, one extra DNC. Mm -hmm. And endometrial cancer patients also started receiving the third DNC at three months, and medroxyprogesterone was added to levonorgestrel IUD. Two years later, in November 2017, we performed an interim analysis, which was based only on complete response rates, and the results were the basis for altering the protocols from November 2017 onward. We removed medroxyprogesterone from all our treatment groups, and the third DNC was added to the endometrial cancer group. Uh, uh, we believe that consecutive change of regimen did not have a significant impact on the results. Okay. And, and I mentioned, uh, you know, certainly before, the, you know, regarding the criteria uh, for what is the definition of a complete response. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, a couple of times that you were evaluating a complete response. And I was wondering, uh, particularly in this setting, um, how did you define complete response versus per partial response as an example? Uh, 
Uh, in our study, as in most studies on hormonal treatment, the complete response was defined as no atypia on pathology. But in contrast to other studies, we did not use the terms stable disease, partial response, or progression. Instead, all patients who did not achieve complete response and had stable disease, partial disease, for example, conversion of endometrial cancer to atypical endometrial hyperplasia, or progression, conversion of atypical endometrial hyperplasia to endometrial cancer, all these patients were categorized as non-responders. So non-responders were defined as patients with any persisting atypia, atypical endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial cancer. Okay. And, and you mentioned, Olga, that uh, patients were getting, in addition to the therapy, they were getting uh, uh, subsequent DNCs. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about how often the patients were monitored and, and what were their strategies for evaluation? Because I know that these might change from practice to practice. Uh, the patients in our study were monitored every three months during the treatment by ultrasound and endometrial sampling. Endometrial tissue was obtained by DNC except for two early groups where we performed office biopsy at three months instead of DNC. Mm -hmm. So this, this was now, um, you know, certainly a, a large uh, study, 418 patients. And I was wondering if first you can start talking about a little bit of the demographics uh, of the patients that you included in your study, um, and particularly talk also about atypical hyperplasia versus endometrial cancer. Overall, 418 patients were included in the final analysis. 2,028 with atypical endometrial hyperplasia and 190 with endometrial cancer. The only significantly different characteristic between the groups was the median age, 34 years for atypical endometrial hyperplasia and 32 years for endometrial cancer, and the range was uh, 19 years to 46 years. The rate of opacity with uh, BMI more than 30 kilograms per square meter was similar in the groups and unexpectedly low, 29% in atypical endometrial hyperplasia group and 25% in endometrial cancer group. Yeah. In contrast to postmenopausal cancer, 25% of reproductive age patients had no symptoms at all. The most common complaints reported were abnormal uterine bleeding, almost 40% of patients, and infertility, about 30% of patients. More than 70% of our patients had regular periods. Yeah, it was interesting that uh, approximately 30% uh, of patients were obese. Probably uh, those numbers will be uh, significantly higher in the United States. Now, Olga, one of the things that I, that I noticed, um, and, and I alluded to this earlier, was that some patients in your study generally would not meet uh, criteria as candidates for conservative management. I'm specifically referring to uh, patients with myometrial invasion and patients with grade 2. So I was wondering um, what percentage of the patients in your study actually had myometrial invasion and a uh, percentage uh, also of with grade 2? Out of the 190 endometrial cancer patients, only 20 patients, 10% uh, had grade 2 tumors and 20 patients, also 10%, had less than 2 millimeters myometrial invasion on MRI. 
three patients had both features that was 1.6%. It's important to mention that neither tumor grade nor myometrial invasion were significant predictors of complete response or disease-free survival in our study using multivariate analysis. Yeah, and, and that's important, obviously, because we do get from time to time patients who have uh, these characteristics, the myometrial invasion and the, and the uh, grade two. So now, um, I think you know, to 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 the point of the of the study, uh, if you can tell us now, what were the response rates documented with this type of approach um, in patients with endometrial hypoplasia, and also what was the response in patients with endometrial cancer? The overall complete response rate for all patients was 96% for atypical endometrial hyperplasia and 88% for endometrial cancer, and the difference was statistically significant, as we expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so actually quite quite a successful rate, over over 80% response rates in, uh, in those patients with cancer. So that's obviously um, uh, quite significant. And, and I wanted to ask you, because in your study, I, I saw you outlined several different methods of therapy, I guess several different approaches. And if you were to highlight to our audience and say, of all the ones that we tried, which one would you say was the most successful strategy? For atypical endometrial, for atypical endometrial hyperplasia, we achieved the highest response rate of 100% in the group treated with levonorgestrel IUD and 3-DNC. For endometrial cancer, the highest response rate of 96% was seen in those who were treated with levonorgestrel IUD plus gonadotropin-releasing common agonists and had three DNC procedures in the first, third, and sixth months of treatment. Okay, so a combination of, uh, of both approaches, I guess. Um, now, Olga, the, um, one of the other questions that often comes up is, you know, do we really need to do a DNC every time we're doing surveillance on, on these patients? And, and, of course, obviously... Um, and, and, you know, I had a patient that asked me, well, won't doing all of these DNCs uh, potentially hinder my likelihood of getting pregnant in the future? So my question is, do, do you think that doing a DNC um, as part of routine surveillance is appropriate as opposed to office endometrial biopsy? Do you think it makes a difference in, in the response rates? We believe that surgical removal of the endometrium before hormonal treatment and then at three and six months serves both diagnostic and therapeutic purposes as it debulks carcinoma or residual hyperplasia, leaving only small fragments of it for hormones to work on. Achieving a higher complete response rate when adding one more DNC instead of a non-endometrial biopsy was an unexpected finding in our study. We speculate that this result might be due to the debulking effect of DNC. Yeah. So we do recommend extra DNC instead of uh, endometrial biopsy to achieve better, uh, higher complete response rate. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, the, the use of the word debulking in the setting of uh, conservative endometrial cancer. Uh, now, um, I wanted to ask you also, because this is also often uh, something else that potentially comes up in some of these patients, is what is the rate of, and I was wondering if you 
documented this in the study, what is the rate of IUD expulsion in the patients entered in, in your study? Uh, you know, a lot of times we're wondering, well, can you see the string? Can you not see the string? And, and um, do you routinely do anything other than just a pelvic exam to check for the string of the IUD? The rate of IUD expulsion in our study was low and did not exceed 1%. Routinely, we controlled the position of IUD with ultrasound every three months, but performed additional ultrasound if a patient started complaining about low abdomen pain or cramps. Okay. And, and I wanted to ask you also, you know, because certainly one of the worries for many of these patients uh, is um, I'm going to be undergoing hormonal therapy of some form. Um, will I gain weight? And obviously for many of these patients, you mentioned 30% in your study, they already are overweight or obese. So um, what, what is your response when they ask you that question? In our study, weight gain of 5 kilograms or more was seen in 36% of medroxyprogesterone-containing regimens and only in 12% of all other regimens. Weight gain was lowest when we used only levonorgestrel IUD. According to our results, we tried to avoid protocols with high dose or progestins because of possible weight gain. Yeah, and I guess also it's obviously it's a population that is predisposed already for weight gain. So hard to tell whether it's the intervention or the lifestyle of that patient, I would guess. Um, I want to jump a little bit to a different subject, uh, the, the subject of uh, progesterone receptor status. Um, wondering if you looked at that in your study or whether you think that uh, there's any difference in terms of likelihood of response based on the progesterone receptor status. Uh, estrogen and progesterone uh, receptor tissue expression was studied in 123 patients out of 418 patients included in our study and showed no association with response to hormonal treatment in univariate analysis. Then we applied another form of statistical analysis, the classification tree model, which showed that when uh, progesterone receptor expression was less than 75%, no complete response rate was 37%. With a progesterone receptor expression more than 75%, non-respondent rate was only 13%. The estrogen receptor expression did not contribute to the prediction of no response. Our data indicates that low progesterone receptor expression is associated with a lower complete response rate, but we believe that low progesterone receptor expression should not be a reason not uh, should not be a reason to omit hormonal treatment. We recommend against routine uh, receptor testing as this does not change the management plan. Yeah, I, I agree. We we uh, we typically don't recommend in our institution either as a criteria for determining whether the patient should have conservative management. Now, I want to um, ask you about the follow-up. You know, I, we saw that the median follow-up range from three months to, I believe, 136 months. And one of the questions we had, uh, we were discussing this manuscript earlier, 
Um, and do you think that, that patients that were followed for less than six months should have been excluded? Um, this is, you know, particularly given the, the fact that the medium time to recurrence was 18 months. Some of the recurrences were diagnosed as early as a three to six months after a complete response. So not all patients with a short follow-up were censored cases when the Kaplan-Meier method was applied. I do not believe patients with a short follow-up should have been excluded. Okay. Now, the subsequent point that I want to cover uh, is uh, obviously the patient's questions about, well, what happens after I successfully uh, treat my cancer? Uh, as it pertains to pregnancies and pregnancy rates and, and, uh, and how to get pregnant. And uh, you, you, my first question is, that what percentage of patients had to use assisted reproductive technology uh, to get pregnant? And was there a difference in delivery rate in women after uh, assisted reproductive technology versus spontaneous deliveries? Assisted reproduction technologies was, were used by 38% of patients who were still interested in family planning after treatment. And the delivery rate was superior in patients with spontaneous pregnancies compared to assisted reproductive technologies pregnancies. Despite our study's expectations, assisted reproduction technologies did not significantly improve the live birth rate, probably due to the older age of patients who attempted pregnancies with assisted reproduction technologies. Great. And, and uh, one of the subsequent questions that many patients will ask is, well, after all of this conservative management, uh, what's the pregnancy rate and what is the live birth rate? The pregnancy rate in our study was 54%. And the live birth rate was 42%. Five patients gave birth twice after completion of treatment. Okay. And then, uh, obviously, one area of major concern after conservative management is, what about if this cancer comes back uh, and potentially comes back as a worse uh, type of cancer, higher histology, worse uh, myometrial invasion, so my first question is, that what were the recurrence rates in hyperplasia versus endometrial cancer group? The recurrence rate was 26% in the typical endometrial hyperplasia group and 36% in the endometrial cancer group, and the difference was statistically significant. Five-year disease-free survival was 72% in atypical hyperplasia patients and 57 percent in individual cancer patients. Great. Um, now, okay. One one of the questions that we are often uh, discussing in in our disposition conference is, you know, should patients who undergo conservative management and then ultimately deliver, um, should they be recommended to have a hysterectomy after, um, particularly after they have completed childbearing? Our attitude to hysterectomy immediately after delivery has changed since we have analyzed, analyzed our data. Okay. During the study, we extensively counseled the patients about the importance of an adjuvant hysterectomy after the birth of a healthy child 
or when reproductive planning scope, uh, stops being important. But in our study, only 3% out of more than 300 patients that we followed up consented and underwent hysterectomies. In Russia, in general, patients are incredibly eager to have their uterus removed when they do not have a recurrence after conservative treatment. Okay. Some patients who delivered once insisted on another pregnancy attempt. And we had a group of 19 patients who agreed to levonorgestrel IUD maintenance after delivery. They were followed for a median of 61 months and there were no documented recurrences. So our current track approach is to recommend levonorgestrel IUD maintenance to patients who decline a hysterectomy after delivery and to patients who plan their second pregnancy. And Olga, based based on on um, the results of the study, and I think I heard you say this already, but I wanted to just uh, reemphasize, uh, you know, particularly when when patients come to us uh, <laughs> next week uh, asking, what's the best uh, strategy? I think based on your study, um, do 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 you think one should routinely add a GnRH uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone agonist to um, the IUD? According to our study results, we recommend adding gonadotropin releasing hormone agonist to levonorgestrel IUD for early endometrial cancer, but not for a typical endometrial uh, hyperplasia patient. Since April 2018, we are conducting a prospective trial to answer if the treatment of endometrial cancer with only IUD is as effective as IUD plus gonadotropin releasing hormone agonist. Well, that's great, and we're looking forward to, to the results of that study. Hopefully it will be uh, submitted to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Uh, and now, Olga, I wanted to ask you, um, your patients who have had a complete response, um, patients obviously are very happy about these outcomes. Uh, often the question is, well, you know, uh, when do you suggest that they uh, remove the IUD? and consider uh, starting to try to get pregnant. We encourage patients to attend conception as soon as possible after the completion of hormonal treatment. If a patient wants to attend spontaneous pregnancy, has a good ovarian reserve, and has no infertility history, we remove IUD. When assisted reproductive technologies are indicated, we recommend ovulation induction with IUD in situ and removal of the IUD before embryo transfer. If a patient is not ready for pregnancy planning, we do not remove levonorgestrel IUD and use it for maintenance. Great. So now, Olga, I mean, obviously, it's been quite a pleasure speaking with you. I've learned so much uh, from this discussion. Um, one last question. So... Obviously, uh, you know, I often ask our, our uh, uh, speakers here in the podcast, uh, what do they do in their practice? So my last question is, based on the results of, the, of this study, how do you manage patients who wish to preserve fertility with a diagnosis of endometrial cancer when they come into your office today? The protocol we use and we recommend is relatively simple and consists of three steps. The first step, expert pathology review, revision of patient's characteristics according to inclusion criteria for hormonal treatment, and patient counseling. The second step, 
hormonal treatment for six months with levonorgestrel IUD plus venodotropin releasing hormone agonist with three DNC. And the third step, referral of a patient to a reproductive specialist for pregnancy planning or maintenance with levonorgestrel IUD. Long-term follow-up is crucial for early diagnosis and of recurrences when, we, when the prognosis is still good and sometimes we can offer hormonal treatment. Fantastic. So, Olga, thank you so much. This, is, uh, this has been really very informative and, and certainly uh, highlighting the, the importance of having these patients referred to centers where they can be counseled about the appropriate options for conservative management. Um, Dr. Olga Novikova, we uh, certainly thank you for your contribution to the literature, to patient care with this work. And uh, uh, once again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.